This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 48, and we are recording on September 27th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And rainy fall days. Yeah, I feel like it's a good thing that we have fall questions today, because today is the yes. perfect day to answer them. It is. We're both wearing sweaters <laughs> for the, like, the first time in months, which is nice. Yep. And it's rainy and a little chilly. Oh, I'm going to make hot chocolate later. <laughs> you live so right. You I live do. Right. <laughs> I do. Um, speaking of things that are happening in the fall, do you like my segue? That was good. I that was good. Ju- <laughs> I just want to remind everybody that Book Riot Live is 46 days away as of this recording, I do believe. And you should join us. It's here in New York City. It is going to happen on November 12th and 13th. And if you get your tickets using the coupon code JAZZHANDS, you will get $20 off your weekend pass or 10 bucks off your day pass. But you should come for the whole weekend. We just announced the lineup for Nerd Jeopardy, which I'm super <laughs> excited about. Um, and also for our Friday evening books and booze pairing, which I'm also super excited about. So you should check that stuff out at bookwritelive.com. Okay, I'll stop now. All right. So as I mentioned, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So how it works is you send us um, your questions. If you need a recommendation for yourself, maybe there's a book that you read that you loved and you want something similar, or you have an event coming up that you want to read to prepare for, whatever. You need something for your book club. You need a gift. Anything goes. You can send it to us by email. Email it to us at getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can just drop it in the form at the bottom of the show notes on the site. Um, If your question is one that we've answered on the air a couple of times, we might respond to you by email instead of on the show uh, because, you know, we've got a lot of questions backlogged and we don't want to miss anybody. So uh, we'll send you our suggestions in email or with links to the relevant shows um, if that applies to you. So um, we are going to read our first question, which is actually two questions because they they came in like back to back and they were very similar. So we're going to answer them together uh, and then I will do the first sponsor and we will get rolling. So... Take it away. <laughs> All right. So uh, the first part of our two-part question is from Sarah Kay, uh, who says, I'm obsessed with all things fall, think pumpkin spice sweaters, cinnamon apples, etc. cetera. Uh, I've been lucky to travel a lot with my job, so I've got to see some places that have absolutely gorgeous fall. Can y'all recommend some books that help put me in a fall state of mind? I'm pretty open to all genres, not really into science fiction or horror. I really like paranormal and magical type fiction. I would prefer something a bit more lighthearted, but I do like thrillers and nonfiction as well. And then Jessica says, it's September 1st as I write this and autumn is just around the corner. Could you recommend me any books about people enjoying fall, maybe even specifically taking place in the Northwest U.S.? I'm in the process of planning a trip to Seattle in late October and I want to get excited for the season and maybe even get some ideas of what to do and see while I'm there. Generally, I love YA, but I'm also trying to branch out to different genres to diversify my reading. All right. Fall books. Okay, so before we get to that, our first sponsor is What the Dickens. I love this this title so much. Okay, the book is called What the Dickens, Distinctly Dickensian Words and How to Use Them. It's by Brian Kozlowski, who is a Dickens scholar. And what he's done is, like, dug deep 
into the Dickensian canon, which is like 15 novels, hundreds of short stories, a bunch of his personal letters. So he's like read all the Dickens things and he's finding the most unusual and weird words and phrases that Dickens used and is taking you on like the etymological history of where they came from and how they ended up in Dickens's work. Um, so it's like this very fun dive into Victorian vernacular, um, which is super interesting to me, <laughs> and I love it. Um, so he is he looks at over 200 words uh, that Dickens used, um, did not necessarily invent, but might have invented the uh, use of or the modern usage of, or, you know, like how a lot of the words that we say in our like common tongue or is stuff that Shakespeare made up. A lot of the things in this book are things that, that Dickens didn't necessarily made up, but the way that he used them was interesting or weird or special in some way. So this is actually a really great holiday gift. Uh, and we are shockingly just around the corner from Jeez. the holidays. <laughs> I know, like I can't even wrap my brain oh, around. Boy. First day I'm wearing a sweater and I'm talking about holiday gift cards. But anyway, if you, we'll just go with birthdays. If you have somebody whose birthday is coming up soon, who likes Dickens <laughs> or is like an into is an Anglophile or any of that kind of thing, or, or really likes words and grammar, um, then this is a good uh, pick for them. And y'all know how much I love the classics, so I'm into this. So that's what the Dickens distinctly Dickensian words and how to use them by Brian Kozlowski. And it's a cute, like it's a really cute little book. It actually would be a nice stocking stuffer. I hate to go back there, but you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so thank you so much for sponsoring the show. We got, I got a copy of that in the office and Scott and Alex and I spent like a very delightful 20 minutes just reading random words out of it and like learning about them. So I we can, had a, I can vouch. Um, it's great. We did a, there's a pre-roll for our uh, videos this week sponsored. They're all sponsored by this book. And so I did the same thing. Like I sat down when I was recording it, like saying silly words into the camera, like <laughs> snuggery, wigglomeration. Yes. And then I, I didn't include any of that in the video because it's literally just me being a goofball, but it was a lot of fun. Good anyway. times. So fall books. Fall books. <laughs> Do you want to go first or should sure. I go first? Okay. I'll, I'll go. Um, so I both... Uh, for some reason, I don't know why I did this, but both of the books that I picked for this are kind of classics. And they're books that I tend to reread almost every year around this time because they're so fallish and, and like just get me in that mood. So the first one is The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. This is the perfect season for a cozy mystery. And Agatha, no one does. I mean, like Agatha Christie, right, is the queen of this, this genre. Um, because all of hers take place in like tiny English villages and have that like... I just want to knit a sweater and drink tea. I don't even like tea and like sit by a fire and, and do the fall thing. Um, so the murder of Roger Ackroyd is a Her Hercule Poirot mystery, which is one of her two. Well, she's got another one, but whatever. One of her two main um, series, Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple. Hercule Poirot is an adorable like Belgian private detective. In this book, he's retired to a small English village in the countryside called King's Abbot. Um, he's like gardening and just enjoying his dotage. And then uh, a widow in the village commits suicide. And when she dies, all of these rumors get thrown up that she was like a murderer secretly. She was being blackmailed. She was having an affair with a guy named Roger Ackroyd. And then the next day after her death, Ackroyd himself is found murdered in his locked study. And no one can figure out how the murderer got in there, how he got out, how he was killed, all of this whole sort of thing. And so Poirot is brought in kind of against his will because really he's just like here to grow eggplants um, to figure out what happened. The book is narrated by the village doctor 
whose name is James. Um, so you get like a cool outsider's view of Poirot, who's like just the best little man with great mustaches. Um, and it's just very full, like so cozy. And I love it so much. So that's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie, which is like the fourth or fifth book in her Poirot series. But those are absolutely you don't have to read them in order, like at all. So carry on. <laughs> True story. That is the first and only Agatha Christie I've read. Oh! But I really loved it. We did it for a book group I was in, and it was great. I feel like you would really like Miss Marple. I probably would. I'm sure I would. I have no doubt. I do love a good cozy mystery. I just don't have time. Okay, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so since both of the askers mentioned YA, and one of them mentioned the Pacific Northwest, my first pick for you both is All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary, which I know I talked about her on the last show, but this is the first book in the series, and I'm recommending it for completely different reasons, so I feel fine about this. Um, All Our Pretty Songs is set outside of Seattle in, like, the foresty areas of the Pacific Northwest, um, and there's all of these scenes where the main character, who is our narrator, uh, is, like, running in the woods, and so it's, like, super great for or, like feeling like you're out in nature in the fall um and it's also a really great story it is a sort of supernatural friendship story which you don't get very often um it's about uh the character the main narrator and then aurora who is her best friend um and their things kind of change in their lives when this musician when they meet this musician jack at a party um and one of the girls falls for him and then you know the other one is like interested but kind of on the sidelines and then one of them gets taken down to the underworld. <laughs> so, you know. You know, like you do. <laughs> so things take a big turn. Um, and it's an Orpheus story, but about friends instead of lovers. And it's a really beautiful novel. Um, it's a great introduction to McCary's work. Um, it does have diverse characters. One of our askers mentioned that. And it's, it's just great. It's a really sort of, it's got that like, a little bit surreal feel to it. It's full of forests in the Pacific Northwest, and it's it's about friendship. So I feel like these are all excellent reasons to read it. So that is All Our Pretty Songs by Sarah McCary. Okay, my other pick for you is The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, which you think you don't want to read because you've already seen the Disney movie, but you are incorrect about that. Uh, the Disney movie is close, to it, but the story, you know, as it, as most book versions of Disney movies does, is a little bit different and much, much darker. Um, so you probably already know kind of the basis of it because it's just embedded in our pop conscious. But uh, Ichabod Crane is a teacher who moves to Sleepy Hollow uh, from, I th- he's from, I think, Connecticut or something, and Sleepy Hollow's in New York. And he moves there to teach. He Becomes romantically involved with a local girl. In the movie version, he, like, falls deeply in love with her. In the book, he, like, legit just wants her money. Um, So he becomes involved with her, but she also has another suitor named Brom. And so there's some of that kind of romantic jockeying happening. And in the midst of all of this is the Headless Horseman, um, the Hessian, who's a ghost who um, haunts bridges and throws pumpkins at people, etc., Um, it's not scary. (laughs) I might be like making it sound a little creepy, but it's really not. But the, the fall thing about, I mean, this like takes place during the fall. He's a school teacher. So it's like the start of the school year. There's also like food, like Washington Irving writes really great parties and like fall hall and holiday parties. And there's so much 
food writing, just like really great New Englandish food writing that's excellent. And it's not, it's not scary, but it's like just creepy enough in that kind of hocus pocus Bette Midler way to like just kind of get you in the mood for, you know, pumpkins, basically. Um, and plus it's only 100 pages. So I, I picked this one specifically for the second, Jessica, I think, for the second question asker who said she wanted, um, she usually reads YA but wanted to kind of branch out. So it's a classic if you are at all interested in getting into classics, uh, but it's short. So if you end up not liking it, you've not like wasted, you know, a bunch of your time. You could really read it in a sitting. So that's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. I love Hocus Pocus so much. I just have Me to. Me too. <laughs> I like, just cannot wait until it's on Netflix. I will watch it every day. I own it. Like, I bought it from iTunes because I just, it's never on stupid Netflix. And so, yes. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Moving on. Um, my second pick for you is The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is kind of the ultimate fall book, in my opinion. Um, and I hadn't read it until like two or three years ago. Um, in And I read it in the fall because my good friend told me that I was not allowed to read it not during the fall because it is that kind <laughs> of fall book. So um, The Secret History, if you're not familiar, is about a bunch of college students at a new, an elite New England college, which is, I think, supposed to be Bennington, if I remember correctly. But it's like, whatever, it's just fictional college land. Um, and they're all classics students doing sort of this independent study with this very brilliant and kind of, um, like, you know, history obsessed as you would be if you're a classic professor <laughs> with this professor and they are like studying Dionysian rituals and like you know all of this stuff and they decide that they want to experience what that's like and hijinks ensue and there is a murder and you basically spend the whole book trying to figure out like what happened how did this other student die um who is to blame what what kind of craziness uh has gone on um and it's very fall because it's you know new england and like the late fall early winter and i don't know it's not exactly light so apologies for that um but it is a page turner and in like a really thinky way um so i think that might be enjoyable for you both so that is the secret history by donna tart extremely co-signed <laughs> i love that book so much and it's the perfect time of year. it's like if a j crew catalog came to life and did a bunch yes! of coke. Like, exactly it is so right. bananas <laughs> i love it so a much plus. <laughs> um so get that mental image like deep in your brain and let's move on <clears throat> okay question two is from bookish science nerd and she says, I was wondering if you could recommend some nonfiction books related to the history of science and tech. I've read and enjoyed Holly Tucker's Blood Work, Richard Holmes's Age of Wonder, and most recently Denise Kiernan's Girls of Atomic City. And I'm looking for another great read that places science within a larger social and cultural context. Okay, I'll just keep going. My first pick is Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History by Florence Williams, which has the greatest cover ever. It's just hills, like literally just green hills. Um, and it is exactly what it sounds like, a history of uh, breasts in humans. But it's um, also a history of, um, what am I trying to say? The, not biology, um, like anatomical history. For example, like breasts are getting bigger, where girls are getting them earlier. They are uh, more and more frequently full of chemicals, we're like fighting, uh, we're struggling with breast cancer, the odds are getting worse and worse, men are developing breast cancer more than ever. Um, so it's a, a kind of a medical history of, of breast tissue, but also anthropologically, like why did humans develop them when most mammals 
develop breasts only when they are pregnant and then when they're breastfeeding and then they go away, but we keep them always. And like, why is that? So there's a lot of anthropological history in this. Um, there's also like a really fascinating history of implants, which I, I was like, had never thought about. Um, she like travels to Texas to talk to plastic surgeons um, about how that technology has developed. And I mean, like talk about a thing that needs to be placed in a social and cultural context, like why we fetishize breast tissue and where that came from. So it's um, medical, anthropological, sociological history all wrapped up into one with a really cool cover. So there you go. And it's um, got a bit of a memoir element to it also because Florence Williams herself, when she was researching this book, got pregnant, had a baby and was breastfeeding. And so she she like goes to labs to run tests on her own breast milk to talk to like learn about the environmental toxins um, that show up in our breast milk and how it, that it's not necessarily true of like any other bodily fluid or part of our body, like what makes them so absorbent, which is an awful word, but there it is. Um, so yeah, breasts and natural history and natural and unnatural history. I'm sorry. By Florence Williams. Um, it's been like five minutes since I talked about a disease book on this show, so it's time to do it again. Um, <laughs> my first pick for this question is pandemic by Sonia Shah, which is a history of, the ways in which pandemics develop and are dealt with both from like, a, well, not both. It's from multiple viewpoints. It's from uh, historical, social, political, economic, and personal viewpoints. So Shah is a journalist and um, she and her son develop, oh, is it MRSA? Yes, MRSA, um, yeah. which is like scary as all get out. Um, and she starts thinking about diseases like you do. Um, and she looks at it through the context of cholera, um, which has this very long and interesting history. Um, you know, it was in the 19th century. We've had, you know, an outbreaks in Haiti in recent years. Um, and so she looks at all of these different ways in which it has shown up and been dealt with. And she talks about like scientific uh, research and she talks about historical and cultural research, and she just is coming from so many different angles. It makes it a really readable, fascinating book. And then the personal aspect is something I always like in these sort of pop culture slash historical science books. So, and she does it really, really well. So, and it's, I mean, like, it's scary, but it's also not scary <laughs> because there's so many things to consider. Like, she really puts it in its contextual place. I keep saying that word context, but really this book is all about context, which is, I think is super interesting and very useful in thinking about it. So that is Pandemic by Sonia Shah. Did you hear in the news recently about how the FDA is like taking away approval for antibacterial soap? I didn't, but I mean, yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right. Like, like I mean, the, the, yes. The news was like, this is basically the FDA said this is this doesn't do anything and is just increasing bacterial right. resistance. Super bacteria to, the, is scary as hell. Yeah, and giving us MRSA and all of that. And I remember I, I had just finished pandemic when that news story came out, and mm. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will make you feel like you know things. No so. more super bugs. It's terrifying, uh, but in like a fun way. No, not fun. Okay, so I read Pandemic, and then immediately after that read my next selection, which is The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert, which means that for, like, two months, I went around just terrified of everything. Like, just don't want to touch germs. All the species <laughs> on the planet are doomed. We're all going to die. It was very, it was very Nietzschean. Um, anyway, so The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert um, is a scientific history of extinctions, as one would imagine. 
Um, and so there have been five mass extinctions over the last uh, half a billion years or so. Mass extinctions being defined as when most of the diversity of life on Earth goes away for whatever reason. The most famous one, of course, being the asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs. The sixth extinction from the title is humanity. We are, uh, through our actions and impact on the environment, destroying uh, the diversity of life on Earth. <clears throat> so she is... Like, the first half of the book or so is a look at the first five extinctions in the history of the planet and what caused them. And it's also a history not just of extinctions, but of our understanding of them. So the science behind it, like humanity, how we discovered fossils and how we figured out what an extinction was in the first place, which, which wasn't a concept we understood or accepted to be true until like the 19th century. Um, you learn a lot about uh, European scientific processes that it's really that are really interesting um and then the, in the second half she's talking about our effects on uh the sixth extinction and where she goes to study those which are really fascinating like she goes diving off the great barrier reef she goes into the andes to look at like frogs and how the disappearance of the diversity of frog life is one of the first indications that we were doing a bad thing to the planet um but it is a, it's just a great scientific history and i i really enjoy that like early that like 17th through early 19th century scientific period when people were like, did you know large bones exist that don't fit an animal? That what do we do with that? And like that befuddlement that scientists had back then is so great. I just like love it so much. Um, and the first half of the book is just ent entirely about befuddled 18th century Frenchmen, which who doesn't love that? So that's The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert. Colbert? K-O-L-B-E-R-T. Whatever. Yeah. Could go either way. Um, okay, my second pick for you is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War by Mary Roach, because duh, Mary Roach. Um, but this is her newest book, and I really enjoyed the heck out of it. It is, um, all about, as you might guess, the military. Um, but it's about, like, it's not about actually warfare per se, so much as, like, how do you keep soldiers from getting heat exhaustion? Or, like, why can't snipers have zippers on their stuff? Or, um, like, what, how, how do you, if you're on black ops, like, how do you deal with diarrhea when you're hiding in a foxhole? Like, you know, Mary Roach is not afraid of asking these questions, and she is so funny in telling you about how she goes about asking them of people who can answer them. And she's so good at giving you the context and the history and the science behind it. There's this great chapter in this one all about, like, stink bombs. Like, apparently... The military, like, it, during the time of the OSS, um, which was, like, pre-CIA, CIA, basically, uh, developed all of this, like, you know, projects around making their enemies smell bad. Um, it's really interesting and weird. We're so good at spying. I know. It's kind of crazy and also a little bit racist. Um, the way it pans out, unsurprising. And, um... It's really a fascinating read and a really enjoyable one. Um, it's just, I mean, she's Mary Roach. Like, she's just good at this. But this was stuff that I had never really thought about before. Like, it's very, you know, on the ground. Like, what do you do in this situation that is not necessarily about getting blown up? It's about, like, the before and after. Um, so that is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War by Mary Roach. Okay, question three. It me. Uh, is from Amanda. 
says, My highlight of 2015 was plowing through all four of Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. It was pretty much instant love, and months later, I'm still looking for a book to cure my hangover. Uh, as powerful as the setting was, I think it is the voice that I'm craving the most, so straightforward and honest. I also love how they were plotted and paced while still giving me so much to chew on. Any suggestions for a similar reading experience? Are there any other Bildungsroman with female narrators that you would recommend? Indeed. Amanda, talk for a little bit. Okay. Um, I feel this pain. I have also read and loved the Neapolitan novels. So the two books that I picked for you, I picked one that's narrated by a 17-year-old and one that's narrated by a woman in middle age so that, because the Ferrante novels start with her childhood and go up through her old age, so I wanted to hit both of those. Um, so the first one is I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. And in the same way that Elena Ferrante's narrator in the first Neapolitan novel is growing up in this kind of genteel, not even really genteel, but like just straight up poverty um, in a kind of... Um, idyllic sort of setting um, and is really into books and literature. This is the very similar thing that's happening in I Capture the Castle, except that's in England. Um, the main character in I Capture the Castle's name is Cassandra. Cassandra? Cassandra? Whatever. She's 17, and she literally lives in, like, a crumbling castle with her family. Her father is a writer who had, like, one big hit and hasn't produced any work in a long time. Her stepmother, who is this very bohemian, strange woman who, like, walks around naked half the time, um, and her sister... And they live in a castle that's falling apart and like part of it uh, in this very it's night. It takes place in the 30s. Um, and it's this, you know, genteel poverty. They have toast for dinner and nobody has a job or like is looking to get one. And her father is this very tortured um, artist. And it's very buildings Romani. So she's buildings Romani. What even did I just make up that word? Um, she <laughs> I like it, though. what does that even mean? Uh, Cassandra, it's her diaries, um, which is the same thing as the Ferrante novels. She is uh, trying to literally capture this castle, like what it's like to live there, what it's like to live in this complete abject poverty, not ever, not have enough food, um, not have clothes to wear. But at the same time, like her family is a family of artists. So it isn't, it isn't like they have no ability to work. They just like, don't like they just refuse to. It's very confusing to me. Um, and then in come these two, this pair of American brothers who take over the property and become their landlords. And so there's like some romance between the two, like uh, unrequited love, like a romance. It's not even a triangle. It's like a quadrilateral uh, between the two sisters and the two brothers. And like the timing is always wrong. People fall in love with each other at the wrong times. There's some rivalries that kind of mirror a lot of the rivalries between Elena Ferrante's narrator and um, her best friend, whose name I can't even remember, Lila or something like that. Anyway, um, so the tone of I Capture the Castle is a bit more twee and like precious than Elena Ferrante's voice, um, but it's still got a lot of this of the same kind of elements um, that the Ferrante novels have. So I Capture the Castle. By Dodie Smith. Genteel poverty. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I had to ask for, I had to phone a friend on this one because <laughs> I confess I have not read Ferrante yet. One day it will happen, one day. Um, but in the meantime, I went to Rachel Fertilizer, who is my personal, and the internet's personal expert on ladies getting their stuff together, or not getting it together, um, <laughs> books. And she gave me two picks for you, one of which I'm halfway through. Uh, so the first one is Girls from Corona Del Mar by Rufy Thorpe, which is the one I'm halfway through. Um, and it is a very 
intense novel of friendship that is also like it ain't pretty like it's like Nia is the narrator of this book and Lorian is the friend in question and they've been really close since childhood but it's like Mia has always considered Lorian to be like this perfect beautiful angel of a human she was the good one and Mia was the bad one she they have this joke about her how her heart is like a dark stone of coal and she's got no feelings and she's a terrible human and so like Lorian was always supposed to be the foil to Mia and Lorian was good and Mia was bad um, and obviously as they grow like that changes and Lorian hits a lot of really difficult situations in her life whereas Mia's life is actually moving along pretty well and as they like come in and out of each other's orbit you know they're trying to figure out like how to continue to relate to each other um and Mia is so judgy and snarky and intense like she is not a quote-unquote likable narrator which is kind of kind of delightful um but yeah boy is she a judgy McDodgerson it's 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 (laughs) it's pretty intense (laughs) Um, and it's not pretty, and I feel like they're, I, they're, all of the books about female friendship should have, you know, the ability to go those places. So, uh, so that is The Girls from Corona Del Mar by Rufi Thorpe. Okay, so for the second book, uh, like I said, I picked something with an older narrator that's a little bit more angry, uh, because the later books of the Neapolitan novels, I feel like the main character really gets, like, in her feelings and her angst a little bit. So it's The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. This is not historical fiction, um, so I'm abandoning that a little bit. And the buildings are, it kind of is a buildings Vermont, even though the character is, like, fully grown up, but she still goes through this, like, finding of herself thing. Um, anyway, so the main character's name is Nora. She's a school teacher, an elementary school teacher. She's in her late 30s or early 40s, I don't remember which, uh, in Massachusetts. She's decided, she's like abandoned her desire to become a famous artist. She's single. She doesn't have any kids. She lives like, she's an upstairs neighbor, quiet, doesn't really have a lot going on. Um, And then she gets a new pupil in her school named Riza, who's uh, a really like enchanting child who, whose parents are both artists and have come to America uh, for the dad to teach at Harvard. Um, one day in the school, the kid is, like, bullied a lot, and Nora has to call his parents, and so she gets involved with the family. Turns out they're kind of neighbors, and then she, like, falls in love with the whole family. Like, she becomes obsessed with the little boy. She falls in actual love with the husband. She falls in, like, maybe also actual love with the wife. Um, and then she really falls in love with them as a unit and gets really deeply entangled into their lives, both as individuals and as a family. Um, there's so like the, the appropriate boundaries just completely kind of dissolve. Um, and then I don't want to spoil it. So I'm not going to continue telling you about the plot because I just realized like, no, spoiler. Um, but Nora, it, uh, is just honest. Like, in the same way that in the Ferrante novels, she exposes her own unlikability and the unlikability of her best friend without any sort of flinching, Nora is the same way. Like, I think the first entire chapter of the book is Nora cursing about how angry she is about her life, which I had never read before from a a middle-aged female narrator. And I just was, it was, like, refreshing, you know, to have a, a woman, she talks about, expectations that are placed on her sexism which is also a big thing in the Ferrante books um, and what women have to deal with and go through especially once they get to an age where they don't feel like 
they're performing for men anymore and um, the special sort of oppression that women without children have to deal with. All of that uh, is in this book. So she's not, since it's not historical fiction, it's not necessarily the same flavor of like anger and sexism that you're experiencing in the Frontes, but it's kind of, it's not the same flavor, but it's the same dish, if that makes any sense at all. Um, so yeah, that's that. So The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. All right, and my second one is on my TBR stack, um, but I haven't read it yet. But Rachel said that this is another good comp um, in that it, it delves into, like, you know, the sort of memories of friendship and current situations of friendship. And it is Another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. All of the hearts for Jacqueline Woodson. Um, and this one came out this year. It was published in August, so it's brand spanking new. And it is about a woman named August who runs into a friend she has lost touch with um, that kind of sends her down memory lane uh, to the 1970s um, in Brooklyn and like how in her memory it was like this magical place and they were young and beautiful and talented and everything was going to be great. And of course, that's not actually how life works. Um, And so it's about the complexities of life. It's about the complexities of friendship and about like trying to discover who you have been so you know who you are going to be next. So that is another Brooklyn by Jacqueline Woodson. All right. Question four. This is from Samantha. And she says, I recently read The Sacred Lies of Men O'Bly about a girl who escapes from a cult only to end up in juvenile detention. I was very intrigued by it and am interested in more fictional portrayals fictional portrayals of cults. Any suggestions? Um, Okay, so I will just keep going. My first one is Devoted by Jennifer Matthew, which is a book that I just finished this, uh, like, last month um, that I really enjoyed. So it's about a girl named Rachel who is in a family that is kind of not so thinly based on the Duggars, if you're at all familiar with their show, 20-however-many, Kids and Counting, which used to be on TLC. Uh, It's very, she lives in a very, very conservative uh, Christian cult, basically, in this church that's um, very patriarchal. The women aren't allowed to wear pants, and their entire education is based on modesty and not tempting men and growing up to be wives, um... They're not allowed to date. They're not allowed to use the internet. They're not allowed to read books that aren't approved by their fathers, all of this kind of thing. Um, And I feel like some people might object to my classifying this as a cult book, but um, this flavor and extreme evangelical version of Christianity is, it is. So, I mean, like, you can send me an angry email if you feel like it, but you're wrong. So, anyway, I mean, like, that's just all there is to it. Um, she has to spend her entire life taking care of her siblings in preparation for being a wife and isn't allowed to make decisions for herself um, that aren't tacitly and explicitly approved by the church. So, in this book, she's, like, living this life. She realizes she's starting to have questions about her faith and her life, and she doesn't know if she's ready to be a mother. Um, she's only 17, but her her older sister, who's, I think, 21, is married and has already had two kids. Um, and so she's starting to be, like, curious about the world outside of this cult that her family participates in. Um, and then she gets on the Internet one day after hearing that one of her former friends ran off and is, like, living a life outside of the, this church. Um, and she emails her and like to check up on her. And through that correspondence, Rachel realizes that she can't stay uh, in her situation anymore. She leaves and then has to learn to make her way in the great wide world. Um, and so there you go. <laughs> Girl who leaves cult. And if you've ever watched the Duggars and like 
wanted to rescue those girls, like just wanted to go in there and just remove them because that's abuse, like their life is abusive. Uh, This will scratch that itch or at least like make you feel like there's hope for them and girls in families like them. Um, So that's Devoted by Jennifer Matthew. Uh, my first pick for you is a book I read years ago and really loved. It's called The Patron Saint of Butterflies by Cecilia Galante, and it is a YA. It's about two girls named Agnes and Honey who are best friends, um, and live in this religious commune, quote-unquote, called Mount Blessing. Um, and Agnes is, like, super into it. She is a believer with a capital B. She feels like she's going to be the best possible person that she can be. Um, and she's, like, 100% committed to it. And Honey, who is her friend, hates it. And she hates the way that the leader, Emmanuel, controls them. And she just hates everything about it, um, except for she also gets to work in this butterfly garden that they're building, um, and that's, like, her one bright spot. Um, And then one day, Agnes's grandmother uh, makes, like, a surprise visit to the commune. She's not a member. um, And starts to get wind of what is going on here, really. It's not all you know, light and butterflies. Um, and then Agnes's little brother gets hurt and the cult leader refuses to send him to the hospital. So Nana Pete basically like takes the kids and makes a run for it um, to get the little boy help and also to remove the girls from this situation. Um, and Agnes doesn't want to go. Honey desperately wants to go. And it's about, you know, what happens to them as they interact with the real world and like start to question what they think they know about their lives. Um, And it was really powerful. I remember really getting sucked into the story. And I thought it was interesting to have those two kinds of characters, like one who is just like ready to go and one who really thinks that she believes in it. So that is The Patron Saint of Butterflies by Cecilia Galante. Okay, my second one is Arcadia by Lauren Groff. Um, To be fair, the first bit of this book is it takes place in a commune and and not a cult, but it becomes a cult, which is a really interesting process to watch in a novel or just like in general. Um, so the main character's name is Bit. He's a little boy who is the first born into this commune community, like a legit 1960s hippies on a commune, living off the land, doing the thing, free love, drugs, that whole thing. Um, and it's very idyllic and sweet and like nice and bit is a a very quiet kid who observes which is a nice narrative tool you know um and the the commune takes place like around this decaying mansion that's called arcadia house so you watch these characters um develop this community and their interpersonal problems and relationships and and his his relationships with the mother his mother and his father and all that um and the way that the commune is set up is um a nice like thing to watch. And then this like messianic figure kind of takes over and the commune falls apart. The more cultish it becomes and the more like devotion that this figure demands, the more um, it just dissolves. So people start complaining about the division of labor. There's not enough food for everyone. The drug thing becomes like a big problem. Uh, eventually the cops come and the, the commune is disbanded. And then Bit has to go into the outside world and, like, live a normal life. So you follow him through this whole process, through his childhood on the commune, through, like, the commune becoming a cult, through uh, the dissolution of that and into his adulthood as he goes off to experience, like, TV (laughs) and, like, fast food and clothes that his parents didn't make him and weird stuff like that and that whole what is the outside world and how do I navigate it kind of a thing. Um, 
And Lauren Groff is really, her, I think, strength is in the interpersonal relationships, like the writing of secrets and the writing of um, conflict and conflict resolution that characters have. And so that's really what's happening here. I mean, like, it's a lot about a cult and a commune and and how those things work and do not work. Um, But Bit is such, like, a sweet and innocent and, like, just nice guy as he, like, from childhood on. And you just, like, feel for him and, like, want him to be successful, which is a nice um, trick. Not trick. Like, it's just nice. Like, it's just nice to have a character that you, like, feel for. Um, So that's Arcadia by Lauren Groff. My second pick for you is actually a list. Um, As I realized as I was looking at this question that almost all of the books about cults I have read are memoirs, so I I don't have that many uh, novel choices for you. But Sona Karapotra um, wrote a post for the site called Cult Hits, Five Ways to Satisfy Your Kimmy Schmidt Cravings, (laughs) which I feel like is perfect for you, especially because it includes the sacred lies of Minobly um, and Devoted, that... uh, Amanda recommended so but it's got a bunch of other ones um that look just great I really want to read all of these books now um and so I'm gonna leave a link uh for you in the show notes um and it's yeah it's a really good and interesting list so now you have not just one but a bunch of other ones to pick from okay it is time for our second sponsor which is the Case of the Defunct Adjunct by Frankie Bo and Lorna, or excuse me, yes, by Frankie Bo. Um, that title just cracks me up. Super fun. And it is book zero, so I guess like prequel, uh, in the Professor Molly Mysteries. So as we were talking about earlier, Cozy Mysteries, like if you are a fall Cozy Mystery fan, this one is for you. Uh, it's about a woman named Molly Barda who got her PhD in literature and creative writing from like a top 10 PhD program and then couldn't find a job. And so she finally lands at a small-time university in rural Hawaii teaching resume writing in the business school. So her life is not particularly exciting. Um, And then she is forced to attend the student retention office's summer retreat. Oh my gosh, how terrible does that sound? (laughs) I just, like, my I have family who are in academia, and this is just, like, I was just like, oh, Lord, I I know about this. Um... And then in the middle of the retreat, the department's, like, walking harassment, you know, case uh, suddenly collapses face first into his cheesecake. And um, and the event is suddenly much more interesting. So if, if you're going to collapse, I'm right into the cheesecake. Like, why the <laughs> heck not? Um, and so Molly, uh, Molly is involved because her best friend comes under suspicion. Um, so she's trying to keep an innocent person out of prison. She's trying to keep her job because it was the only one she could find, even though it's not very exciting. Um, so if you're a Wodehouse fan, Wodehouse. I don't believe I just said that. Woodhouse, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I just read things um, and don't think about how they sound. Uh, so yeah, if you like Woodhouse, if you like Dorothy Parker, if you like Agatha Christie, um, but with like a Pacific spin on them, you should pick up The Case of the Defunct Adjunct by Frankie Bo, first in the Professor Molly Mysteries series. Thank you so much for sponsoring the show. Uh, Oh, and the next question is also me. Okay, here we go. Right along with the mysteries. Uh, This question is from David, who says, I'm looking for books like Dan Brown's Robert Langdon series, smart thrillers, smart thrillers with a dash of the unsolved mystery vibe of the Illuminati and whatnot. (laughs) That's a great Illuminati and whatnot. It could be a show (laughs) title. Um, Amanda, you go first. Okay. um, I just... (laughs) 
I'm such a nerd, y'all. I just realized that both of my picks for this are like mysteries based on the Illuminati based on books. So there you go. <laughs> Please enjoy this nerdgasm that I'm about to give unto you. So my first pick is The Club du Ma by Arturo Perez Reverte, which you might be familiar with uh, The Ninth Gate, which was a Johnny Depp movie that is very loosely based on this book. Um, it's about Lucas Corso, who's a book detective. He's like a mercenary that rich people hire to hunt down rare editions of books for them. Um, his shtick is that he doesn't necessarily do it ethically. Like, he has some unscrupulous means. He doesn't actually care about books at all. Like, he's totally in this for the money, which, some point, like, the idea of anyone getting involved in any aspect of literature for the money is just hilarious to me. Hilarious. Um, hilarious. Like, <laughs> when I read that, I remember, like, I actually laughed out loud. He goes on this <laughs> monologue, like, a rant with a friend about how, like, I don't care about the value of blah, blah, but I'm here for the money, da, da, da. And I was like, ah! <laughs> you're here for that. That's cute. <laughs> anyway, so he is in it for the money. He uh, gets hired to authenticate what may or may not be an original manuscript of the Three Musketeers. And while he's doing that, he gets like drawn into this bonkers bananas plot based around another book that is uh that was made in the 17th century 15th century a long time ago hundreds of years ago um that is like supposed to be able to help you summon the devil and so he gets this is uh it's worth pointing out that this is kind of based on the swashbuckling work of dumas himself so there's a lot of like what? <laughs> We're just like going on an adventure on stuff that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it's a lot of fun. Um, so he's searching both for a way to authenticate this manuscript of the Three Musketeers and also for this book that helps you summon the devil. So unsurprisingly, he goes uh, into this deep underground world of rich people who were devil worshippers and like occults. And there's like a femme fatale who might also be Satan or a demon. You never really know. Uh, he travels all over the world in a very Robert Langdon kind of way, solving puzzles and, and deciphering clues. Um, all to, and there is, there's kind of, it's not like a government Illuminati sort of thing, but there is like some secret society stuff happening behind the scenes. Um, so it's the Robert Langdon books, but even slightly nerdier, if that's possible, because Robert Langdon himself <laughs> is like such a dork in like this really adorable way that like I want him to be my uncle. Um, but it's a little darker and a little bit nerdier, and is based on Dumas, because yes. So that's The Club Dumas by Arturo Perez Reverte. Oh, and it's in translation. The translator is Sonia Soto. Uh, yes. Okay, so my first pick for you is The Last Templar by Raymond Corey, uh, which has, I think, one of the most delightful, like, oh, well, it's in the early stage of the book, an opening scene. Um, so, okay, so the context of this book is uh, there's, it's like flashes back to, you know, the fall of the Knights Templar um, in the 1200s, so a while ago. Um, but that one escapes, and he's got this, you know, chest of the treasures entrusted to him by the Order's Grand Master, and then his ship vanishes. And then in present-day Manhattan, uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is doing, like, a black tie gala for the opening of a new exhibit that's called The Treasures of the Vatican, and these four horsemen turn up in, like, full Knights Templar outfits, and everybody thinks they're part of the show, and then they behead someone and steal the chest of treasures that has reappeared in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So, you know, dramatic. Um, and 
in the audience or uh, attending the gala is an archaeologist named Tess Chicken, who is just like terrified, obviously. Um, and she ends up teaming up with an FBI investigator named Sean Riley to find out like what the heck is happening, who are these guys, why are they spouting Latin words, why did they behead somebody, why did they steal this thing? Um, and it goes like all of these historical places. Um, there's also interspersed with like letters from the last night of the Templars, um, which I think is really cool. Like I'm into the historical stuff like being a woven part of it as well as like the modern people discovering the historical stuff if that made sense those were words um <laughs> so anyway i feel like if you dig like you know hidden realms of christianity and weird history stuff this will uh scratch that itch as well as having like you know an investigative team on the case so that is the last templar by raymond Corey. okay the dante club by matthew pearl is so, so dorky, y'all. Like, where do I... What even am I? Okay. <laughs> um, so this takes place in, like, po- like right after the Civil War. So, like, 1860s, 1870s in Boston. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Dante Club of the title is a bunch of poets that you are probably familiar with, embodied. So, like, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, um, Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, James Russell Lowell, and there's another one I don't remember. So they are part of this... Dante Club, they're, like, translating Dante's Inferno, they want to get the translation out there, um, whatever, and in the midst of their, you know, poets poeting stuff, there's a series of murders in Boston, um, but they're not, like, regular murders, each murder is inspired by a circle of Dante's Inferno, so, like, it's recreated by this killer. So the Dante Club, obviously, is a bunch of intellectual nerds who are, uh, really into Dante, um, and decide that they're gonna go find who this killer is and what the killer is after and like why are you recreating Dante's Inferno um and so it's a it's graphic like the the uh Robert Langlandon books are violent but I don't feel like they're necessarily graphic but the um the the murders based on Dante's Inferno are necessarily like kind of gross to read so if that's something you're not into I'm just you know warning you um but like having this club of brought to life classic poets solving really kitschy and disgusting murders in post-Civil War Boston is just so great. Like, I'm so happy that somebody out there made this a book. Um, And there is some secret society stuff going on a little bit, other than the the Dante Club of the Poets, um, that, like, the secret society stuff takes place in, like, Harvard, which makes a lot of sense because they've got their own weird Illuminati things going on. Um, And, yeah, so, yeah. Like, nerdy thriller with history and art and literature and symbols. So that's The Dante Club by Matthew Pearl. I just want to point out that three of our four picks for this question have the word club in the title, and I don't know (laughs) why. That's just a thing that happened. Um, I guess if you want a book about, like, a secret society. uh, Yeah, but you would think, like, society would be in there more than club. Like, club is (laughs) the thing you have when you're 10. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay, sorry. (laughs) So you gotta hide it. You gotta hide it, right? (laughs) My second pick for you is The Mephisto Club by Tess Gerritsen, which is technically the sixth book in the Rizzoli and Isles uh, series, but I don't think it matters. Um, And it's, like, Lady Robert Lang which makes me happy. Um, 
So it is about, uh, so there's the two main characters are a medical examiner named Maura Isles and uh, Detective Jane Rizzoli. And their latest case is that there is a young woman who's been brutally murdered and um, a Latin word is scrawled in the blood of the scene. Speaking of gory, if you have a sensitive stomach for that stuff, do not read these. Like, Tess Gerritsen was a medical examiner, I think, so she is super anatomically accurate with her (laughs) gore. Specific. Yeah, she's very specific. So, like, if that is not interesting to you, maybe take a skip. But anyway, uh, in the course of examining, like, trying to figure out who done it, um, they come into contact with this cabal called the Mephisto Club, who are dedicated to thinking about evil and are trying to prove that Satan like, walks among us? Crazy, right? Um, and so... Well, one hopes so. <laughs> one one, one hopes it's only, crazy. <laughs> one can only hope. So, Maura and Jane are trying to solve this mystery. This club is, like, getting all up in their business because they think it's, like, related to what they're studying, and so they're trying to deal with that. Um, and then, of course, they've got their own personal stuff going on that they're trying to deal with. So, uh, and, like, is was the murder performed by a demon? Who can say? Um, so that is the Mephisto Club by Tess Gerritsen. Was the murder performed by <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, it's, I feel like that kind of scratches the same, like, especially which was the Illuminati one of the Dan Brown books? Um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. But I Something about a key? Was it the lost? Yeah, it was the one that takes place in DC. And like, that one is kind of, you're like, is he possessed does he have wings like what's going on so i feel like this has a similar vibe um do we have time for the last question we have seven minutes can we do it yeah let's motor okay let's do it i hate carrying them over it makes me feel like i failed yeah okay so this is from ashley she says i'm a college student who still loves to read ya but as the genre becomes more and more popular i feel like there are some plots i keep hearing over and over again it may be that i need to explore some adult books as well can you recommend some adult books that someone new to adult books would enjoy Okay, I'll just keep going. Um, so my first pick for you is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. It takes that dystopian uh, dystopian thing with a feminist twist um, that so many YA novels right now are doing, which I love. Um, and it gives, it's just, but it's like way adult. Like there's nothing YA about this at all. Um, and also this was first, you know. Um, so this was like published in the 80s. I think. Yeah, 1985. So the main character's name is Offred. She lives in the Republic of Gilead, which is actually just a hyper-conservative Christian uh, dictatorship, I guess, that has taken over New England. Um, She lives with the commander of the Republic of Gilead, and her job as a handmaid is to sleep with him once a month and hopefully have a child. Um, And he has a wife, so she has to, like, deal with all that, too. She's not—women are not allowed to read— um, they're only valued for their ability to bear children. And Margaret Atwood essentially wrote this book um, by taking the things that the far right and like extreme Christian conservatives um, want to do or talk about doing to women and taking them to their logical conclusion. And what she got was this book. So this is a um, speculative fiction, page turner, super page turner, but it's also like a feminist classic. So I feel like if you've done that kind of trope or genre in YA, You'll probably really enjoy this. So that's The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And I use the word enjoy loosely. It's not pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I wasn't sure what kind of YA you read. Like, there's a lot of different kinds of YA. There's, you know, the magic-y ones and historical and contemporary. So I tried to pick one that's sort of more on the magic-y side and one that's more on the contemporary side. So my first pick for you is Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge by Paul Kruger, which if new adults fantasy was a thing this would be that thing. Um, it's about Bailey Chen, who has recently graduated from college and is like a sharp go-getter, super organized, and yet she's just kind of failing to launch. She's having trouble finding a job. She's working as a bar back at like her high school friend's bar um, and is just like trying to go on interviews and find something. Um, and then it turns out that the bartenders are actually like agents fighting off supernatural demons that prey on drunk people. And one of the ways they do that is by mixing these supernatural cocktails that, like, give them powers. Super great, super enjoyable, super crazy plot. Um, And then it turns out, like, that maybe something sinister is going on in the world of the bartenders, the supernatural bartenders. It's so much fun. Um, There's a lot of great characters. It is, like, freshly out of college, so it has a little bit of that YA feel to it because, like, people are still trying to figure out, like, how life works. Um, But it is squarely, like, takes place in bars, so that's not exactly young adult. Um, And I just really enjoyed it. It's a super fun read. So that is Last Call at the Nightshade Lounge by Paul Kruger. Why do all of our books have demons in them? This is the thing I'm just I realizing. like demons. Like, like I don't all care. <laughs> no, I don't either. I think it's great. It's just like the theme of this show. Demon books. We do have a wheelhouse. We do. Okay, so my second pick for you is Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones. And I picked this because some people actually do classify this as YA, but I do not agree. Um, mostly because only a small part of it is about his young adulthood. It starts like with his childhood. And then it's, you know, kind of David... Copperfield Z, except with werewolves. Um, so the, the main character, whose name I can't remember, is born into poverty. Um, he's an orphan. He lives with his grandpa and his aunt and his uncle. His grandpa dies, and his uncle commits a crime that sends him on the run, him being the kid. Sends the kid and his aunt and his uncle on the road, on the run together. And so you're following this very makeshift, poor, brown family. I think they're Native American. As they go, like, they just try to stay one step ahead of the law for years. They travel from town to town through the American South, just making ends meet, doing the thing. The, 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 the other thing that they have to deal with is the, is the fact that they're vampires. I mean, they're, they're werewolves. The aunt and the uncle are werewolves. And so the boy knows this, obviously. He knows that this thing about his family, and so he's trying to survive. He's trying to decide um, what kind of person he wants to be. He wants to be a werewolf. Like, he wants to fit in with his family, but it's a change that comes... Um, with adolescence and his adolescence kind of comes and goes and still it still doesn't happen um and so he doesn't he has to either like let go of that idea about who he wants to be and go be like normal or sit around and wait for it to happen or try to make it happen or um you know decide essentially what kind of life he wants to live so uh like come for the coming of age right but like stay for the weird details about werewolf life like why they're not supposed to eat french fries and like why they can't wear pantyhose that kind of thing which is more mortifying little tidbit in this book it's like gross um so it is horror if that's a thing but YA horror is like a big subgenre so if you read any of that you'll probably enjoy this so that's Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones and my second pick is if you're drawn more to the like Sarah Dutton slash Laurie Hall Sanderson side of things where it's like real life stuff people doing real life stuff um but they're teenagers but this is a short story collection called Oh Yeah What I'm Gonna Tell You by Cecilia Rodriguez Milanes I love this collection so much. Um, 
all of the characters in it, uh, the sort of through line are that they are um, Cuban by heritage, but they're Cuban American. So either their grandparents or their parents uh, fled from Cuba and came to America um, and all different regions of America, so Northeast or the South or Florida or whatever. Um, and all of them are kind of just trying to live their lives. And that means very different things for all of them. It means different things for their culture and their families and like how they feel like they fit into life or don't fit into life. Um, and it's just so lovely. It's a really interesting collection. The voices are really, like it sounds like it would be the same story over and over and again, but it's really not. Like the voices are all really distinct. Um, there's funny ones, there's sad ones. It's just got a huge range to it inside of its sort of uh, the thing that ties it together. So I just really think think this is a great collection everybody should read um but especially if you are used to reading like you know the dealing with family or dealing with boyfriends or dealing with whatever real life YA stuff this is a great one for you so that is oh yeah what I'm gonna tell you by Cecilia Rodriguez Milanes Woo! we did it we did, we did it. it all right that's our show please go rate us on itunes and leave a review if you like the show or if you don't we'll take you know we take constructive criticism you can find us on social media i'm at i'm amanda nelson excuse me jen is at jen irl jen with two n's and thank you so much to our sponsors for sponsoring the show and we will talk to y'all next week bye